Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. This past week, I gave a talk to the Appraisers Association of America about the valuation of art from the black belt. The talk focused on the long-standing habit of using epithets like self-taught, outsider, vernacular, and visionary when describing the work of black artists from the South, while white artists who lack formal training rarely seem to be so described. While the weaponization of language is today a huge problem, with anger from both the left and the right about the use of words to divide us, there's no question that such adjectives serve to segregate artists of color and do nothing to help us understand the breadth of their contributions. This week, we delve back into museum architecture and hear from a leading protagonist about how buildings are designed and what goes into the blending of new spaces with inherited ones. I remember reading about Jimi Hendrix once that the year before he died, he would spend three, four nights in a row at Electric Ladyland Studio on West A Street, not leave. They'd bring in occasionally some food and you could say he was working or you could say he was doing what he loved. And I felt that way about architecture. That's Mark Cavaniero, founder of Mark Cavaniero Associates, a San Francisco-based architecture firm with over 75 employees and an award-winning portfolio of public, nonprofit, and private sector projects. Mark began his career in 1983 in the New York City office of Edward Larrabee Barnes. Since its establishment in 1988, his eponymous firm has completed a wide range of architectural and master planning projects, including large and small-scale institutional, nonprofit, commercial, and residential projects. Notable ones include the 1995 renovation of the Legion of Honor Museum with Edward Larrabee Barnes, the SF Jazz Center in San Francisco, Public Safety Campus in San Francisco with HOK, Oakland Museum of California, among many others. The firm's work has been recognized with over 100 design awards for more than two dozen completed projects, including the AIA California Council, AIACC, 2012 Firm of the Year Award. Recognized with numerous awards and honors, Mark joins us from his office in San Francisco. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to have you, particularly because when you were a kid, your dad was effectively the lead client for a manufacturing building designed by Marcel Breuer, and you toured it while it was being constructed. Since I was the landlord of Breuer's Whitney Museum, I'd be very interested in your memories of those experiences and your sense of the Breuer building itself. Okay, well, first I'll start with the Breuer connection. My father was enamored with Breuer. He was a corporate director in charge of research and development. And his company, then called Torn Corporation, had been hiring Breuer to design all their buildings. And as a matter of fact, my father's colleagues all had multiple houses designed by Breuer in Litchfield, oh. Connecticut, um, Gagarin, Stillman, et cetera, Danaher. And so I grew up kind of amazed by a few of these houses we'd go to in summers for picnics or get-togethers. And then during the construction of the tech center, my father brought me a few times on Saturday mornings, and he was enamored with it, and I thought it was great. And I'm quite sure that's what led me to ultimately becoming an architect. I started immediately looking up books about architecture in school, and it wasn't long after that that I fell in love with it. So I, I've always given myself the sense that Breuer and this connection were important to me. In terms of how I feel about his Whitney, I have very mixed feelings. I think uh -huh. it's obviously a very powerful building. It has a great sense of self, craft, materiality, detail. I always personally love the stairwell. Yeah. It's a building of its era. It's strong. And while some people call it brutalist, I think it's really offset by craft and materiality and richness, the things that Breuer brought to his houses. 
And I'm not bothered by its lack of a contextual response that many people talked about, how it didn't relate to the apartment buildings or the brownstones nearby. I've always believed the way I was trained that really civic public buildings should differentiate themselves from the normal urban fabric. If you look at a great city like Milan, which has great context everywhere, but when you come downtown to the Galleria, the Domo, the Opera House, mm-hmm. they are differentiated. And I think that was normal in a sophisticated urban realm. So that didn't bother me. Honestly, what bothered me the most, Max, was the kind of lack of transparency, the moat, the inverted pyramid, you know, this top-heavy shape. They all lined, I think, to make the object a building very massive. It's formidable. Mm -hmm. It's almost impenetrable from the street. And I always felt that a museum about American art, our country's art, I think, wanted to be much more inviting and welcoming, more warm, easier to enter, I don't know, easy to move through, easy to understand. I, I... I was a kid and my brother brought me to MoMA and I walked upstairs and I saw Guernica for the first time and I was blown away. And And I think that idea of a building inviting people to come in, yeah. to be curious and learn about something that they ordinarily may not do is very important. Right. But the great museums of the 19th century were all classical columns. They were in some respects aloof. And Breuer, I think, would say he was building a fortress. He was protecting the museum from the vagaries of Madison Avenue and commercialization. So there was an ideological reason for his choice. I I do understand that. And that's why I have mixed feelings. On the other hand, I think those buildings, say Schinkel or Berlin or something, I think that of our era in the 20th century, I, I think we had moved beyond that. And we were trying to be a society that was more transparent, more democratic, more open than mm-hmm. perhaps we were in the Beaux-Arts past. That was what modernism was about in art, music, and certainly architecture in the early 20th century, famously Corbusier's Five Points and mm-hmm. trying to replace Beaux-Arts buildings and basements with roof gardens and glass walls and just trying to bring technology and a new sense of society to be more open. And that is important in in our public buildings, be they museums, university buildings, theaters, anything really. And I think that's where Breuer didn't quite, in my opinion, balance it enough. I suspect that at that time, the Whitney was embattled in a sense that it had attempted to make a case for American art by offering its collection to the Met, which was rebuffed back in the 30s, offering... I see. You know, and so there was a degree of defensiveness. You're absolutely right. But you had this childhood in Connecticut, and you went to college at Harvard, and then you went to Berkeley, got a master's in architecture. And it was there that you befriended John Barnes, the son of Edward Larrabee Barnes, who encouraged you to join his dad's firm in New York. Is that correct? Exactly. Correct. And you got your start there. So tell us a bit about that odyssey from Berkeley to Barnes's office in New York. Uh, I loved it. And... When I met Ed, John's father, Ed had a strong relationship with Breuer, had studied under him at Harvard, and was close friends with him. And when I would travel with Ed, I worked on a lot of projects with Ed, I became very close to him. Uh, We would talk about Breuer all the time. Ed's early houses, the Osborne house, particularly his own house in Mount Kisco, were based on Breuer's early ideas of how to develop a plinth house and how to Mm -hmm. differentiate the man-made from natural. And we would talk a lot about it. And it was wonderful because I felt like I understood exactly where Ed was going. And Mm -hmm. Ed was intrigued that he had someone who could talk to who knew all these Breuer buildings. And 
like them. So he and I got along well, and I worked very hard. I went, I think, a period max of 14 months where I never had less than 300 hours on my timesheet. And I would typically be there around 6, 6.30 working on my project, and Ed would come by and drop a sketch of a new project in the office and say, I'm troubled by this or that, and what do you think? And then he'd leave, and that was code for me, um, <laughs> spending the evening till 11 o'clock or midnight, yeah. sketching, drawing, and then the next morning, assuming he'll come by my desk at some point and show him what I thought. And the more I did that, the more he did that. And it was great. It was very reciprocal. And on the one hand, he had someone vetting out his ideas. On the other hand, I was being mentored in a very direct way, and I loved it. It's interesting to think about the worlds where young people are dragged along like that in finance, in medicine, and in architecture, and the kind of extraordinary lengths that architecture students and young architects have to go through. I don't think the public realizes how grueling it is. It can be. And uh, for a while, I was running three projects. One was a sculpture garden in Minneapolis. One was uh, in Indianapolis for the Christian Theological Seminary. And those two were both out of town. And so every Tuesday and Wednesday, I was traveling to the Midwest, and I'd work Thursday nights, Friday, Saturday, often Sunday and Monday to get ready for the next Tuesday, Wednesday Midwest trip. And my whole life was just centered around traveling to these two different projects in the Midwest and getting ready for them. Right. But we're not trying to discourage young people from the profession. <laughs> you, elsewhere, you have given a kind of encomium to the field and encouraging younger people, I know. Oh, I loved it. I mean, the, I, I think it's a little bit like a musician. You yeah. know, I remember reading about Jimi Hendrix once that the year before he died, he would spend three, four nights in a row at Electric Ladyland Studio on West A Street, not leave. They'd bring in occasionally some food. And you could say he was working or you could say he was doing what he loved. And I felt that way about architecture. I chose to work or live in this capacity because I was enjoying it. When I was director of the Indianapolis Museum of Art and the Dallas Museum of Art, I programmed the beautiful, flexible galleries designed by Edward Larrabee Barnes. Didn't you work on the IMA while you were at his firm? Briefly, yeah. yeah. Uh, briefly. I mostly cut my teeth at the walker, actually, yeah. on, the, on the sculpture garden. And the sculpture garden for those listeners who don't know it, is an extraordinary, very formal garden that faces the Walker Art Center and in some ways is heavily trafficked beyond the museum itself. What was the work like for you there? Well, it started with Martin Friedman having this comment to Ed Barnes that it was too cold in the winter and the parking lot was remote, if you remember, yeah. far end down near the baseball fields. And he wondered if there was a way to make that walk seem less cold and far. And Ed said, well, what if we have people walking through a greenhouse and, mm -hmm. um, and we'll fill the greenhouse with art and not plants? And Martin said, it's great. Why don't you sketch something? So Ed literally put a diagram, uh, as he was wont to do, on a small piece of paper back of an envelope, literally something small, and left town for a three-week vacation. It was in August. And so I just dug in for about three or four weeks. Ed came back, liked it, showed it to Martin. Martin came up with a small amount of money to have a model made. I flew out to Minneapolis, worked with a local architecture firm to make a model. Martin took the model to see John and Sage Coles. And uh, within a short period of time, they agreed to fund it. Everyone liked the idea, and it became a project. So I was scuttling back and forth now to meet with the local rec and park people who control the site and then the consultant team and showing the design ideas as they developed to the museum and the fuller staff and working, of course, with Ed. And it was really my first project as a project architect. And of course, at the same time, Ed was asking me to take on the work at the seminary in Indianapolis. 
it was great. It just meant a lot of focus, just a lot of focus. Right. Did you get to Cranbrook as part of all of this? Would yes. You, yeah. What an amazing environment that is for learning about a period of modernism and a period of the, the run-up to it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, in general, all of Saarinen's work I've always found beautiful. And speaking of Saarinen, Dan Kiley did the landscape design for Oakland, and I had the privilege of overseeing the restoration of his landscaping at Miller House and Garden in Columbus, Indiana, which was Fantastic. acquired by the IMA. How does your work intersect with the work of landscape architects, starting with the Walker, perhaps, and beyond? Sure. Uh, well, I'll begin by saying Kylie was probably my favorite landscape architect. I actually worked with him at the very end of his career and Ed on our Indianapolis project. So I got to know him a little bit and it was great for me because Ed really thought highly of Dan and mostly because Dan thought similarly as Ed in terms of focusing design on volume and space. And the collaboration between the two of them was wonderful to be part of and to witness. In general, the collaboration with the landscape architect can be fantastic. They think things through in a way that architects often don't. They have this understanding about the quality of light as it changes in the course of the day and from season to season. And it's different feeling in light with grass on the ground versus snow on the ground. I, I think their sensibility is very rich and ultimately very human because they're focusing on things organic and alive. The struggle is to find a landscape architect that is really focused on space and volume and movement and not so much on the particular plant species and individual items of the landscape. And that's where mm -hmm. Kylie was brilliant. I think Kylie thought much more like an architect than most people realize. Well, I will share with you, we had some challenges in Columbus at the Miller House and Garden because some of his choices for plant life, for trees in particular, weren't ideally suited to the harsh winters of Indiana. And we ended up having to swap out some of what he had planted. They had the opposite problem with the Oakland Museum. His mm -hmm. plant material was too East Coast and needed frost and more water than was available in California. And within the first year, they had to replace an awful lot of the material Kylie had specified with different West Coast versions of similar plantings in terms of yeah. height and scale. So that perhaps was never Dan's strength. Well, it's sort of like when leaks happen to great architects and people <laughs> blame it on the contractor. Tell us a bit about interior museum design. Well, Ed always wanted the museum building to be an elegant and flexible vessel for the art, really to be inobtrusive. He really wanted the art to take over, and he wanted us always to focus on the volumes, the movement, the flow, ideally a, a really nice sense of rotation. He wanted the architecture to be as minimal and seamless as possible. As you know, he loved in the Dallas Museum, that main gallery where the wall becomes the vault and then turns back down because there's no seam, there's no joint. We also studied lighting a great deal. Ed wanted the light to be as warm and balanced as possible. Of course, it needs to be flexible. And so Ed was very capable of being reductive and disciplined, and those were things that I took from Ed. He, he admired Mises' work, of course, because of the careful minimalism and the detail. He also admired Kahn's work. He had taught with Khan briefly at Yale, and when I worked with Ed closely, Ed would often refer, and we would talk about a Mies project or a Khan project or both in the context of something we were approaching. And then he would always smile and, and tell me how much he admired Breuer, and we would relate back to a Breuer building, but how he couldn't quite ever feel like he understood Breuer's complex material choices and the way Breuer composed different materials in the same space and found a balance. And Ed always felt like that was something he admired but couldn't do himself. And so when it came to the museum work, I think we tried to get into much more monochromatic approach, very small 
palette of materials, as you know, at the Dallas, the, the garden walls and the building walls of the Indiana limestone are all the same. And, and really trying to reduce things down to a small palette that was as much about the volume as possible and really allow the art to take over. And that's something that has never left me. So I've worked on theaters, museums, dance centers, art centers, courthouses, public buildings, variety of buildings. But I've always had that keen sense of how to make a volume as a point of departure and not necessarily think about architecture as planes or surfaces, but think about it more as the uh, space and volume and how it's lit and how you move through it. And that's something that is always with me. I often have the imaginary voice of Ed over my shoulder commenting on what I'm drawing. And, you know, he passed away in 2004. So it's been 17 years since he's been around and it's probably been 25 years since I've worked with him. Tell us about the Oakland Museum of California and your work there. I was hired in 1999 to do a long-term master plan. They had a lot of programmatic issues that they were never happy with. When the building had been completed, what, 30 years earlier, 1969, the outdoor circulation, the galleries were inflexible, the ceilings were low, the lighting didn't work well, the mechanical system <laughs> was built into concrete ducts. A dream museum, in other words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they had condensation, roof leaks, early generation planters where the asphalt would, on warm days, ooze out of the joints and allow the water in and sometimes mm -hmm. the asphalt in too. So they asked me to look at a master plan, which I did. And it was interesting, Roach was still practicing and he was a bit upset that they asked me to do it. And uh, we interviewed and were selected. I'd mentioned that to Ed and Ed knew and liked Kevin. So Ed called him and he told Kevin Roach not to worry about me, that I would be respectful and I would do it diligently. And of all the people they could have chosen, that I would somehow not disrupt things too much. And what I did do is I began by studying his drawings. Mm -hmm. Roach's drawings. And I yeah. found it was interesting, a two-foot planning module and an overlaid four-foot planning module, which is what I found in all of Ed Barnes's early projects, which is something I did. I used to stay late at night and go through his archives and look up some of the early projects of his that I admired. Back in that era, there was not uncommon to begin a project with a whole planning grid. And then I found that Roach was using a 20-foot, or what Ed would call an organizational grid. So the whole building was laid out on a 20-foot module with a two- and four-foot planning grid superimposed. So as I started looking at program elements, I simply started working within the Roach modules, and everything seemed to be resonant. I understood that the concrete was about permanence and force and timelessness, and the oak wood infill was about something organic and warm. I chose not to use either material because I thought they would diminish the original artifact. So after a lot of consternation, I landed on the smooth stainless steel as a material that was about light and the reflection of light, material of its day, that would be almost ephemeral. It was the structures that we had to do, canopies, new gallery enclosures, um, stairway covers, all those things. I realized we can handle them all with really lightly detailed stainless steel. So it wouldn't compete with the original, it would allow the original to be stronger, more forceful, and ours could more or less reflect light and be part of the garden. And so the more we disciplined that approach, the more it worked. We had to work our way through the local landmarks. It's a very significant building nationally, but it's extremely significant locally in the city of Oakland. And every detail, even how we attach drywall to the concrete walls in the existing art gallery, was reviewed, and we yeah. ultimately made all the attachments to the concrete tie cones so that it was reversible. And so it was a great deal of care to not mar the building at the same time to significantly change it. 
behind the scenes, a lot of the public doesn't follow how many challenges architects face in coding, in review by third parties, and frankly, the inheritance of an architect who came before you, as with Kevin Roach. There's so much to consider. Exactly. It was very complicated and very rich. And again, I enjoyed it. And Roach is kind of of Ed Barnes' generation, more or less. Yeah. And the more I studied the building, the more I, I would smile and say, this is unlike what I would be doing in Ed's office years <laughs> earlier. And I understood the overarching goals and I understood the discipline and I respected that. And I simply tried to work in a way to meet the new program, develop my own counterpoint. I, I didn't want it to feel like five architects had worked on. I wanted right. all the pieces we did to have a cumulative gesture so that it was one era, one move at one time, whether it was a stair cover, a, uh, a gallery, it didn't matter. I, I wanted it all feel like one language that was complementary and deferential, but not the same as Roach's. When we started landing on that, I felt like this has to be the right approach, at least for me. Well, that's a generous philosophy. Not every architect looks at their assignments that way, and they want to leave their mark and make it right. their building. Let me ask you about museums and the pandemic, because the pandemic seems to be calling into question the centrality of permanent collection galleries. They're empty now, even as museums reopen. And there seems to be instead a focus on fleeting experiences, smaller exhibitions and temporary commissions that are in favor. What are you hearing from clients in the museum field about what they want? It's that and the opposing. In other words, I think my work over the last 15 years, the Oakland Museum, SF Jazz Center, ODC Dance Center, the museum work, uh, Finn Center, they've all really had a lot of focus on audience development. It's mm -hmm. been a driver for these projects. How are we bring in a younger generation that isn't attending the way they used to or as their parents did that are happy with virtual experiences to enjoy from their laptop at home? And what's the draw? And you know, a lot of these fleeting experiences, as you define them, these smaller exhibits, unique commissions, site-based, are very much sought after to bring in new people with their excitement. Mm -hmm. And I think they work well for that, to give something to the public that would draw people in who might not otherwise come in. But I think there's also a significant role still for the larger exhibits because they're important, I think, for the larger context of the work and for mm -hmm. education purposes, mm -hmm. for someone to understand how the ideas fit together, where they come from, why they're relevant to today. The education component is paramount for most of these institutions. For instance, since we're talking about the Oakland Museum of California, a large component of their viewership are fourth graders who mm -hmm. study California history in school, and they come in busloads during the school year. And the idea that the docents and the curators and the teachers can have a context around which the ideas around history, art, ecology, science can be explained and shown and made relevant to the kids is really important. And so I think the broader exhibition base is still pretty essential, and I think we're in an area where we need both. We do. I guess I'm watching directors of museums looking at cost reductions, looking at space reduction in terms of yes. energy costs, security, conservation, all those issues. And they're saying, what zero-based approach to architecture do I take? And it seems as much to be about invitational experience as about the solid march of history and history of Understood. art. Understood. 
Understood. And and that gets you into more, can you have different museums, different collections feed from each other and, and support each other in an ensemble versus one being holistic and, and dominant? And, and I think those are all relevant. I, I just personally like sometimes when I can see uh, even a, you know, a rotating show, a traveling show where you see a whole body of work. For instance, I know a couple months ago, I was in New York and I saw the Jasper Johns show. And I really like seeing the progress of his work over a course of decades. And uh, I thought that was fabulous. Speaking of youth-obsessed society, you have said elsewhere that <laughs> architecture is a unique discipline because as you get older, your opportunities can grow, which is an unusual thing in any profession. Are there any kinds of projects you want to take on in the future that you haven't in the past? Oh, that's a great question. I've taken on most types, with the exception of maybe hospitals and some advanced medical care types. But over the years, we've been lucky. We've grown and diversified. Our firm has grown to be maybe 75 architects, and we've worked on courthouses and office structures, workplaces and housing and lots of different arts and higher ed. But I guess I still really have a strong emotional connection to civic and arts work. That's mm-hmm. where I began. That's where I was weaned in Ed Barnes's office. And uh, I love doing any of those projects that avail themselves to me. We also right now have four, yeah, four large housing projects in the office, and I'm enjoying that. And I've always been interested in large-scale housing. I didn't work on those in Ed Barnes' office mm-hmm. because he didn't. He didn't have any. He didn't do them. My thesis in college was on post-World War II urban renewal and mm-hmm. affordable housing through the public housing program. Yeah. And I see it now as something more important than ever. That is how we solve this crisis of affordable housing. And it's so strongly linked to car travel and traffic congestions. And of course, the destruction of the ozone layer by these same autos and their emissions. So yeah. I think transit-centered urban development is really essential for our country to get our cities to be more efficient, more compact, and to do a better job of housing people and moving them. And I like working on these projects, and I'd like to work on more of them. What about 3D printing of scale, particularly in the developing world? Uh, yes, we're watching. I'm studying. I'm still not quite sure how it'll work out in terms of materiality and durability. I think it takes certain types of projects and certain applications and certain climates to be more successful. But I think it could be fantastic. And we've been getting more and more exposed to just modular construction and um, a lot of off-site construction here in California. The construction costs are so expensive and time is such a huge component in the overall cost of projects that the more they can be built off-site and being done in parallel or being built sooner and brought to the site completed to condense the time frame and to have a better quality of construction with more careful detailing, all those things we're getting very involved in. And I think those are great movements forward for the construction industry. The challenge is how to make an integral, cohesive piece of architecture when pieces are being assembled in Italy and China and coming on a boat and being put together in California or somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And it's not impossible. It just takes a lot of thought. Speaking of a lot of thought, the former guy had this idea that (laughs) classically styled architecture for federal buildings would be the best way forward. Well, happily, that's been tossed aside. What impact do you think the newly passed infrastructure bill may have on the future of architecture in this country? That's a great question. And I have to say, I'm not clear on that yet. I mean, I'm hopeful 
as most people are. I really want to see more of our federal tax dollars going into infrastructure and transit, into housing, into education, as I discussed. And personally, I'd love to see less of those tax dollars going to our military purposes. But I do understand that the military purposes are necessary and to do what I'm describing presupposes a more stable world, which we don't have at the moment. But I would like to think that the infrastructure bill is more of a mindset than an actual body of dollars, even though it is that. So building bridges, roads, rebuilding the internet, other systemic solutions, I think is great. It has a lot of excitement. It brings certain focus level to our physical world and these problems, maybe hopefully the sustainability, ecological issues related to all this. But I also think that the larger issue for me that I'm hopeful about is that it brings with it the mindset that it is generally a hopeful mindset that we can change things in a way that maybe FDR did best in the 30s. I I remain an optimist. I always have been. I think being an architect, maybe like being a film connoisseur, requires you to suspend disbelief and you have to. Your clients want you to dream broadly. So I dream broadly that this is just a first step. And it's our first investment and it's our first chance to get the public excited about maybe spending less money on things that we shouldn't be and more money on things that we need. And if it ends up being more money on public universities, public schools, affordable housing, on programs for people with needs that goes beyond the scope of the current infrastructure bill, I think that would be fantastic. And I want to believe that that will happen that this is just a necessary first step to get everyone mobilized in this way of thinking. Well, Mark, thank you for helping our listeners suspend some disbelief today and making (laughs) time for a conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. We've been speaking today with Mark Cavaniero, founder of Mark Cavaniero Associates. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.